Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm WITF reporter Marie Cusick sitting in today for the vacationing Scott Lamar. I'm joined by Scott Standish of the Lancaster County Planning Commission, which is in the midst of a major initiative called Places 2040 to envision what the future will look like for Lancaster County. Thanks for joining me, Scott. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Marie. It's great to be here. So first, tell us, what is Places 2040? Well, Places 2040 is what the county's calling its new comprehensive planning process and plan. Um, Every 10 years, the county goes through a process to identify um, what kind of future do we want for Lancaster County, and um, this is our effort to do that. So describe to me what the role of the Lancaster County Planning Commission is. Not everyone may, may have heard of it. The Lancaster County Planning Commission are nine members um, that are appointed by the Board of County Commissioners. They're actually volunteers. And it's their role to kind of guide and steer this planning process over the next several months. And and it's basically a two-year process. And um, the staff then of the Planning Commission uh, are the actual folks that will be pulling together this plan. So tell me, what have you been doing so far? Okay, over the last year, we started back in November. It's been a year now. Um, we've been engaging the public in discussions about Lancaster County, and we've asked people, what do you love about Lancaster County? What would you make better? We've asked them, what were some of your preferences for the future? What are some of the priorities? What are some of the challenges and opportunities that you see as Lancaster County continues to move forward into the next uh, generation? And um, we've heard a lot of, of folks uh, comp- uh, comment on what they'd like to see, uh, about 4,500 folks so far have uh, contributed to the process, and um, we're looking forward to even more folks. Yeah, Lancaster County does have a very loyal following. People love to visit there. People love to live there. I mean, what have, what have you been hearing from people? Well, they love the landscapes. Um, obviously, the uh, agricultural farmland, the rural landscapes. They love our city. They love our boroughs. They love the uh, the Susquehanna River, and they love the Furnace Hills and the Welsh Mountains. So it's really all these different combinations of, you know, urban and rural, natural and cultural, all of these things together, which really create what Lancaster County is. It's a special place. So I know that Lancaster County has been uh, very successful in the past about preserving farmland and that sort of agrarian landscape. Um, what what has been happening though over the past decade or so with development? Um, I know that. Some of the farmland has, has been eaten up by housing or by big, you know, retail development projects. I mean, what have you been seeing? Yeah, over the the last several years, um, the county has been. Um, directing or trying to work with communities to direct that growth to what we call designated growth areas or urban growth boundaries. And what we've seen so far is that uh, a majority of the new residential units in Lancaster County um, are being directed to those designated growth areas. So about 78% of the residential units built in the last 15 years were directed there. However, what's happening is within those boundaries is that we're developing at a very low density of 4.4 units per acre instead of the 7.5 units per acre that was designated in the 2006 plan called Balance. And so what that means is that we're using about 70% more land within those boundaries than we really need to to accommodate that growth. Firstly, outside of those boundaries, we're still seeing significant amounts of land being used for low-density residential development and other uses. So we saw about 6,000 acres over the last 15 years that were actually developed outside of those boundaries. So um, it it becomes very problematic if we want to ensure that Lancaster County remains that special place that we all envision um, if we continue to develop with this kind of pattern. And how does that happen? I mean, if you have this plan you developed 10 years ago, 
Why is development going outside those boundaries? Well, a lot of it has to do with um, zoning controls and so forth. And um, so we need to work more closely with our municipalities to um, help them um, look at the big picture, look at Lancaster County as a whole and how we can all work together to ensure that we're reaching those goals of containing growth and directing growth to appropriate places, again, the designated growth areas rather than, you know, continuing to sprawl out into the rural landscape. And the Lancaster County Planning Commission just has an advisory role, right? You could set these boundaries and you can say this is what you ought to be doing. But when it comes to a project, it really comes down to the, munis- the municipality's decision, correct? That's correct. Um, there are 60 municipalities in Lancaster County, and each one of them has the ability to create zoning laws and regulate land use and so forth. And um, it's the county's role to, as you said, to provide advice. And uh, the only power that we have really is the power of persuasion. So... You may not want to answer this, but who takes your advice and who doesn't? Are there good, you know, good municipalities that are you'd hold up as an example, or other ones that that aren't doing so well? Certainly, it varies from place to place and from time to time. And so, there, are, you know, I always like to think of planning as evolutionary, not revolutionary. So, um, you know, it takes some time uh, for these concepts to to be embraced and so forth. But we're making some really good uh, progress. Like I said, we're as far as directing growth to appropriate places, that seems to be working. The, the challenge we have is with the pattern of development and looking at kind of what some people might say are new concepts when, in fact, they're really old concepts of mixed use and developing more traditional types of development patterns. Um, so working with municipalities to understand, um, you know, how they can actually, these patterns can actually benefit the community is one that we need to continue to do. Do you find people, you know, they might be supportive of sort of a mixed-use, denser thing in, in housing thing in, in uh, as an idea, but then when it push comes to shove and it might be in their backyard, do you get do you hear pushback from people that they, they don't want that? We do. In fact, the feedback that we've been receiving so far is people want to see more walkable communities, more mixed-use communities, and I think because um, you know people are now beginning to understand the health benefits of getting out and walking and biking and being able to do things without having to get into your car all the time. So that it, in concept, it sounds great. But when it is next to you, you're, you're not sure what that's going to impact or how that's going to impact your existing place of residence and so forth. Um, and one of the challenges we have, obviously, too, is with the transportation and how that relates to that. Um, unfortunately, uh, what we're seeing is that new developments, when they're put in, don't connect to the next development over. And so um, when we do those kind of connections, we provide more opportunities for how you get from one place to another. Um, Without that, we're dumping all of the traffic onto, you know, certain roads and so forth, which causes congestion. So you've identified uh, in your discussions with the public eight different priorities. Mm -hmm. So let me just list them off here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's see, I have them. Okay, so managing growth, housing choice, urban places, employment, transportation, parks, trails, and natural areas, agriculture and farmland, and thinking beyond boundaries. Let's just start with the last one there, thinking beyond boundaries. Uh, What does that mean exactly? Okay, what that means is typically we try to solve problems and challenges by looking at either municipal boundaries, political boundaries, school district boundaries, and so forth. And what we're saying is we need to think beyond those boundaries because, because no single organization, agency, municipality can solve problems alone in today's world. We know that we have to think beyond those boundaries to solve these issues and challenges that we face. I mean, think about 
about stormwater, for example, it doesn't it doesn't um, you know recognize political boundaries. There's no line on a road anywhere that says you're in this municipality or that municipality. Um, roads, for example, I always use the example of Columbia Avenue in western part of Lancaster County, um, which is divided between East Hempfield and Manor Township to the south. You can't solve the challenges on Columbia Avenue by only looking at one municipality. You need to look beyond that. So what we're suggesting here is not only that do municipalities need to look beyond boundaries, Reed, the Lancaster County, needs to look beyond boundaries as well. How do we fit into the larger region of South Central Pennsylvania? And also, how do organizations look beyond their boundaries? Typically, we look in you know our own little silos when we try to solve problems, whether it's historic preservation, ag preservation, or building development, You know all these different types of things. But today, we're realizing that if we're going to solve all of these challenges and really take advantage of opportunities, we need to work together, thinking beyond boundaries. And, and just going to another one of these housing choice, what does that mean? Do we What kind of housing stock does Lancaster County have and what do you think it needs? Okay, right now about 80% of all the residential units in Lancaster County that were built in the last 15 years were single family. And what we're seeing through a recent market housing, housing market analysis um, is that there's a real demand for um, alternative types of housing or other types of housing. Including, What's that mean? Well, other types of housing like multifamily housing, apartments. Um, you think about the the the, um, the kind of demographics and how they're changing, and younger folks looking for um, you know maybe smaller places to live or more affordable places to live, or some that are really looking into just renting rather than actual purchase. So really looking at, at providing the whole you know spectrum of housing options is what we're thinking about. Again, if we go back to eighty percent single family, there's certainly room now for other types of housing within our communities. Yeah, what have you seen in Lancaster City? Because I'm from Lancaster and I've noticed the city change a lot in a lot of positive ways. You have all these art galleries, restaurants, and, and it just seems like there's a, it's a lot more lively. But, I mean, rental prices there have really gone up quite a bit, haven't they? Yeah, it sure is. And that's, uh, that's because there isn't enough of them and so forth. So, obviously, supply and demand. And um, and because Lancaster City is a great place to live. That's where people want to be. That's where the action is. That's where, as you said, First Fridays, the galleries, the restaurants, the brew pubs, the all of that together really created a wonderful place to live, and people want to be there. Do you see any trend shifting from, uh, you know, millennials who may be starting families and buying their first home? Are they wanting a sort of more suburban new construction development that may have, you know, used to used to be a farm field, but now it's brand new houses? Or do they want to move into a more urban kind of space like Lancaster City or one of the boroughs? I think they want to start out when they're single professionals or just married and so forth, and, and, and that's kind of the environment they want to be in. As, as they have families, that may change, and we'll have to look at that a little bit more carefully as we look at the different uh, demographics and things like that. Um, you know, maybe I think today, though, uh, even with millennials and so forth and wanting to raise a family, I'm not sure that the big yard is something that everybody's interested in anymore. I mean, it's a lot of work, a lot of time, and people would rather spend time doing something else. What about the um, older population? Uh, Lancaster County does have a lot of mm. retirement communities. Absolutely. Uh, what, are, what are the trends and the needs there? Well, you see, too, that that's actually uh, something that's changing in the city. Um, you know, as, as people age and so forth, um, we're looking at a uh, you know, significantly um, number of individuals who want to be in an urban place like Lancaster City. And so there are some opportunities now in downtown where you can, you know, can live and be close to things. You can walk to things and so forth. So I think that's a positive trend as well. 
Let's turn to the the parks, trails, and natural areas. That was another priority. Lancaster does have a lot of farmland, but it doesn't actually have a ton of natural areas. I mean, what do you what do we have, and what do we need, or what do you envision for the future? Yeah, only about fifteen percent of the county is in woodland and forest land right now. Um, the Lancaster County Conservancy has been doing a phenomenal job in working with others to um, really preserve and protect a lot of our natural resource areas. The Susquehanna Heritage um, is also working very hard along that corridor, the Susquehanna River, to protect and um, to enhance the recreational experiences that are there. Um, and uh, so, what we're hearing from the public is that we love what we have, but as the population continues to grow, let's make sure that we have enough to continue, you know, um, providing those recreational opportunities. The one, one thing I think that's happening, too, is that if, as people get out and experience some of these things, the Northwest Trail, for example, along, you know, the Susquehanna River from Columbia North has been just a phenomenal experience for people. They love it because they can get out there with their families. It's safe. They can just have a great time. They can stop in the towns to get something to eat and so forth and just enjoy the outdoors. And, and it's a he- part of their health program, too. Uh, you know, it's walking or biking and so forth. So I think because the people are experiencing those things, they're saying, we want more. And we want them connected so that, you know, when uh, we develop trails like this to Columbia, okay, now what's next? They're asking, how do you connect that to Washington Borough? How do you connect that over to the Manor Township Trail and so forth? I imagine that takes a lot of work, uh, coordinating different municipalities or or thinking beyond boundaries, I would assume. It does. Um, But however, when you have great examples like that one, it's easy to then show people, you know, you can actually go out and see it and feel it and do it. And that, that makes that's a selling point right there. Do you feel like those silos are coming down or do people still sort of think of their little turf? Uh, you know, it varies, but I do think that um, we're seeing more cooperation and coordination in Lancaster County than we have in the past. One of the uh, concepts in this new planning process is in Places 2040 was to create this idea of what we're calling our Partners for Place. Our Partners for Place are actually 18 countywide, regional, or city organizations that have come together to help build awareness about this plan, educate the public about the plan, and then engage the public. So these 18 organizations are featured in a new film that we just created, um, and their efforts have been really um, great because um, as we sit around the table and we talk about these issues and challenges, we know that if we're going to preserve farmland, for example, the Lancaster Farmland Trust, we know we have to work with LHOP, the Lancaster County Housing and Opportunities Partnership, to ensure that housing is in the right place, housing, you know, there's choices and so forth in our urban growth areas, and, and so we're beginning to see all this collaboration and coordination that all these pieces fit into this puzzle and they all connect. Yeah, I've seen that video. It's about a six-minute video, right? It's on your places2040.com website. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. I was like, oh, what a beautiful place to live. And I'm like, oh, I live there. That's great. great? Yes. (laughs) Um, But getting back to one of these, uh, going to your eight priorities again, uh, one key thing I think people would agree is you have employment here. Um, So you can't live, work, and play in an area unless you have a job or a source of income. So how do you plan for employment or encourage business growth? I mean, what, what does that look like? Yeah, from a forward? planning standpoint, we just need to make sure that we have adequate places um, for those types of uh, industries and commercial activities and offices and so forth to actually exist. So that's part of the process, making sure you have that. Um, the other is to work with our partners, the Workforce Development Board, um, you know, Economic Development Corporation, the Chamber of Commerce, and all of our other partners to ensure that we're growing the businesses that we want to see in Lancaster County and providing the skilled um, you know, labor to actually you know, um, have jobs in those kind of fields. So um, that's, that's all part of the, the process. 
What are the trends, though? You know, when I think of Lancaster County, I think of agriculture, tourism. I think of a lot of the entre- small entrepreneurs, small businesses in Lancaster City. Uh, you know, what what do you see as the future for different jobs yeah, and industries? It's all of those and growing those um, even further. And some of the uh, the offshoots to those types of uh, businesses are important. Um, the entrepreneurialism is a really big um, effort, as you know, as part of Lancaster City and their comprehensive plan is to really focus on small businesses, um, which, you know, provides real stability to our community. Um, and we're seeing, seeing a lot of that um, in, in the city as well. So um, just continuing those those trends and so forth, I think, is something we want to keep an eye on as we develop the plan. Okay. So another one you have here is urban places. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what does that mean? More than ever in in the last um, three or more decades that we've been doing planning, I've never seen this much interest and focus on urban places in terms of let's make them better. Let's redevelop. Let's infill. Um, let's retrofit. Let's take our historic buildings and find new uses for those buildings. Um, all of that, I think, is is part of um, people seeing what's going on in Lancaster City, what, what they see in Lidditz and some of our other boroughs, and they want to see more of it. And also, they see that as a way of helping to preserve farmland. There's no better, you know, farmland preservation program than ensuring that growth is going, you know, to the appropriate places, our cities, our boroughs, and the surrounding areas to accommodate that growth. You, I don't know if you can answer this, but as somebody who's lived in the area for years and as a planner and thinks about these issues, why uh, has Lancaster City changed so much and undergone this renaissance, whereas certain other places um, haven't. You know, I'm thinking if you think about Reading and Lancaster, they're two very similar cities and they just really, Reading hasn't experienced the same kind of renaissance that Lancaster has. Why? Do you, do you know why Lancaster's changed so it's drastically? It's hard to say, but I think part of it has to do with the leadership and the, and the, and the folks that um, are involved in community re- revitalization in Lancaster City. I mean, that, that, that is key to, to success in just about everything, is finding that leadership and the people that really are passionate about changing things around. I think that certainly set the stage um, for that. Um, you know, the city itself, the city alliance, Lancaster City Alliance, um, and other groups all working collaboratively with the city. And there's a broad, you know, uh, group of uh, organizations that have all come together to make sure that Lancaster City does become or has become, you know, the place that it is today. And it's going to require that continued leadership and, um, and work to make, sa- make sure that it stays that way. So I know you're trying to get the word out about the survey on the website, places2040.com. What, what, are, what do you want people to do and how can they participate in this process? Well, over the course of the next four or five months, we're going to continue to have different meetings around the county at different workshops um, as we have in, over the last 12 months. We met with you know, municipalities and regional meetings. We met with organizations and agencies. We had general public information workshops, all of those types of things. Um, over the next four months, you know, pay attention to um, places. This is 2040.com, and you'll see when we have events, we're going to have a spring event somewhere around April to um, ask the community, as we are in this existing survey right now, what choice do you want to make for Lancaster County in the future? Right now, there are three different scenarios there, and we're asking you to choose. Um, do you want to continue on trend? And if we continue, as you said earlier, if we continue a trend at 4.4 units per acre, we're going to be breaking out of our designated growth areas um, by 2040. We have to accommodate 132,000 more people in the county over the next 25 years. It's We can't stop growth. We can't stop people from moving to Lancaster County. It's a question of how do we accommodate that growth in 
is there a way we can do that so that it continues to preserve and protect those things that are special about Lancaster County? So that's so we need to look at these scenarios. Another scenario is balance, which is the existing plan right now. It calls for 7.5 units per acre and starts talking a little bit about strengthening our rural strategy and so forth, which means protecting our ag lands and our rural landscapes. The third scenario is the one that is based on what we're hearing so far. It's called Places 2040. And Places um, really is balance on steroids. It's saying that we need to intensify um, redevelopment, infill, and reinvestment in our urban areas and surrounding areas. It's still 7.5 units per acre, but you know, it's, it's with the intensity of infill and redevelopment. And then really look at how can we protect the last remaining natural resource areas in our county and really strengthen our agricultural heritage programs um, in the county. Balance on steroids. I like that. That sounds very balanced. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I know you had a, there was this big story in LNP a few weeks ago mm-hmm. that showed different maps and, right. and it showed projections of looking like, uh, you know, in 25 years, this, a lot of land could just really be gobbled up, right? Absolutely. If, if we look at the balance and if we look at even more so places, there'll be significant amounts of land still available for development beyond 2040. And when you talk about those population growth numbers, uh, how much of that is are, are new people coming mm-hmm. in or just the natural population trends? Yeah, people are surprised. It's 50-50, basically. So 50% natural increase you know, from us having babies and so forth, and uh, 50% um, coming from outside the area. What challenges do you see to implementing this plan? I mean, what kind of, obviously, it sounds good when everyone comes together and says, this is our vision for the future. But what kind of pushback do you get from people about some of these ideas? Well, it, it's going to be a lot of changing minds about how things are done. I think the thinking beyond boundaries concept is one that's going to be a challenge. I think the public is recognizing that we have to do that. I think now we need to work with those organizations and municipalities to to really embrace the concept of thinking beyond um, the typical way that we solve problems, and that that will be a challenge. And the other thing, too, is that when it gets down, when the rubber hits the road and that development starts happening adjacent to where you live and so forth, people really become concerned. I think we need to show really good models of what good development can look like, good mixed-use, walkable development that's connected, that provides other opportunities for people to get around and so forth. And once we have those, I think people will be able to understand what we're talking about and will be more open to, to those concepts. One of your projections shows that as the sort of business-as-usual trend, if that continues, there's three urban growth areas that will just run out of space, and that's, that's Lydda, Sleola, and Gap areas. So what, will that, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, that means we'll have to expand those boundaries to accommodate the growth, which means obviously taking more farmland. And nobody wants to see more farmland um, consumed in Lancaster County than that, that's necessary. Now, there is what a lot of people don't understand. There is farmlands within designated growth areas. Designated, designated growth areas were established around an existing borough or the city and surrounding lands to accommodate enough growth, 20 years' worth of growth generally. Um, and it includes infrastructure, including sewer, water, fire police, all those types of things. Um, and, uh, you know, once once those lands are filled up, going to have to expand beyond. Um, and, and so anyways, with the farmland within those boundaries, though, is projected for growth. And when someone sees a farm within an urban growth boundary developed, they become concerned. But it's important to understand that that farm needs to be developed because that's where the infrastructure and so forth exists rather than leapfrogging out into the rural areas where there's, you know, more farmland and, and a rural landscape. 
Yeah, and I'm just thinking of there's a big retail project just north of the city on Fruitville Pike. I don't want to put pick on any particular development, right. but um, I believe we're getting our third target in the county now. So, um, you know, people love their farmland, but they also love their convenient shopping experiences, right? Yeah. Do you think there's a tension between those two things? Well, there is. And again, it can it can be a part of a, a different design approach, maybe, which will help solve some of, some of that. But it's interesting when um, we ask people in these surveys, you know, what are some of your big concerns? And uh, amazingly, um, or not so amazingly, people are concerned about what they see as overdevelopment of retail and commercial in Lancaster County. And do we need so many of these different types of shopping opportunities? So that is a question right now. Okay, so what should folks do other than they should go to the website, places2040.com, and, and do what? Absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of information on the site about the comprehensive plan, why a comprehensive plan is important, and why you need to join the conversation. But most importantly, we're asking people then to take the survey. Um, the survey is the second um, survey that we've done that's online, and this builds on the first one. But it's really important that we hear from everybody about the type of future that they want to craft for Lancaster County in 2040. All right, Scott Standish of the Lancaster County Planning Commission. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Marie. It was great. And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. I'm Marie Cusick. And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Marie Cusick sitting in for the vacationing Scott Lamar today. And we're talking with Steve Wood, who is the beverage director at Luca in Lancaster. Welcome to the program, Steve. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Steve, I brought you in today because uh, you just have a passion for cocktails, and it shows. And I, I met you a, a few years ago when you were working at John J. Jeffries in Lancaster. And I wanted to talk about some holiday cocktail ideas uh, because it's that time of year. Uh, people are having parties, and, and you just have a real passion for cocktails, it shows through. So tell tell me how you got into all of this. So, um when I originally came to the area, I was going to Elizabethtown College, and I was just looking for some extra work to make a little bit of extra money, and I fell into a role at Ruby Tuesdays um, as a salad bar attendant. Ooh, nice. Um, and that was probably about 2004. And uh, from there, um, the general manager at the time had noticed that I had really great guest interactions, even as a salad bar attendant, even though I was technically you know, mainly in the kitchen. And he asked me, would you like to be one of our hosts? And I was like, sure. You know, I was this young 19 or 20-year-old, and I was like, yeah, this is this is great. Um, so it kind of all started there, and then there was a night. It was a Friday night, and I'll never forget it. Two of the bartenders did not show up to work. And for whatever reason, this general manager, his name is Richard, you know, he approached me, and he was like, hey, I see you always talking to the bar staff. Uh, particularly at the time, a good friend of mine uh, had been working that bar for two years. And he's like, do you know anything about making the drinks? And I was like, well, I've never done them, but I could probably figure them out. And it was Friday night, and I was behind bar. And kind of the rest was history. The night went really well. I met some of my, you know, one of my best friends that I worked with that night, our first interactions. And she was like, I don't understand how you've never done this before. But at the time, you know, I was 20 years old, so I wasn't, you know, really well-versed in any of these things. But there, you know, one thing I really learned was spec and consistency. Everything had to be made to a T there. And oddly enough, it was a very important place to start for me. Um, 
So that's where I got my start. Yeah, that's a that and that's a big promotion uh, from salad prep, right? Because that's a, it's a lot more lucrative to yes. be a bartender, right? Yeah, and you know, going from that to all of a sudden making tips was like this crazy, eye-opening experience. Um, so um, around that time, the good friend of mine, uh, his name is Matt, um, and he ended up taking a job at a new restaurant opening in downtown Lancaster, and it was called John J. Jeffries. Um, Inside the Lancaster Arts Hotel. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had talked to me about how they had this new concept of farm-to-table that was really inspired by the bounty of the land in Lancaster County. And uh, the chef who was taking on this um, new challenge was actually, you know, he had been a chef all across the country, Vail, Colorado, running one of the busiest Marriott resorts. but he looked at what was happening in Lancaster and what was happening, you know, with agriculture in the area, and he couldn't believe there weren't any restaurants that were specifically using products from from our home. Um, so, you know, I kind of fell in love with this concept, and obviously I'm still bartending at Ruby Tuesdays, and I got a phone call from my friend Matt, and he was like, hey, they're hiring their second round of servers. Would you be interested? Um, so I applied, interviewed, and got the job there. And what I noticed when I first met you there is that, you know, at the time, maybe 10 years ago, there was still sort of this Appletini phase where you'd go out and you get these goofy looking martinis. Yeah, we had the remnants of the 90s for sure. But when I when I met you there, you just clearly had such interesting recipes. And then when I'd ask you a question, like some simple question, you would give me this long history of, of the, the background of the cocktail. So how did you how did you develop that interest and passion? So uh, upon, you know, the beginning of my job at John J. Jeffries, I was a server with a lot of interest in what was happening behind the bar. I would always be, you know, the guy asking the bartenders, what's going on? Why are you doing that? And, you know, to the point where they were like, well, why don't you just get back here one night and learn? Um, And, you know, I started being trained as a bar back basically to assist these gentlemen. Um, And one of the main bartenders there at the time, his name is Gordon Drake. Um, he kind of has left his own little legacy in Lancaster. Um, he, you know, after spending one training shift with me, looked at me and was like, okay, I want to take this more serious. Like, I don't want to just teach you about what we do behind this bar. I want to teach you the way my mentors in New York City, in Los Angeles, and San Francisco taught me. And I didn't ask you to do this, but you've brought one, two, three, four, five, six, six books yes. on bartending. So, yes. um, What's in those books, and what did you learn? So the first book I, you know, I ever acquired about bartending was actually from Gordon, and he handed me uh, this vintage-looking, you know, kind of like '70s Art Deco cover-looking book, and it's called the Savoy Cocktail Book. Um, arguably, you know, one of the first and most influential um, cocktail books ever produced, um, and it was from the 1920s. And he gave me this book, and he had this little context behind it that it was a book that was handed down to him from one of his mentors in San Francisco. And he said, I've been waiting to hand this book on to someone young like you for decades. Handed me the book, um, lovingly signed the front of it saying, you are the heat. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I I read through that book, and I tried to make every recipe. And what I found was the book was very confusing. 
you know, it didn't break things down into ounces. It uses um, all kinds of terminology like pony glass or jigger or, you know, um, just all, all these kind of esoteric, strange things that you almost need a guide for. And that kind of led me to buy more cocktail books that basically break down what these things mean. Um, there's a, a great book called Imbibe by David Wondrick that really talks about these old cocktail terminologies and and kind of equates them to modern day, you know, concepts and, and you know, measurements. So that's when I really was like, okay, um, this does make sense. So I just kind of fumbled my way through that book. And in doing that, I, I realized there's these specific ways that things are broken down. And, you know, the, you know, the way the base spirit and everything works together, it's, it really can be broken down into a science, just like, you know, a chef would cook a dish. Um, so that is kind of where my love for these, these ideas came from. But when I was at John J. Jeffries, we had a great cocktail list. But what I really, really wanted to do there was take the concepts that were happening in the kitchen. I saw all this fresh produce come in every day. I met the farmers. I talked to the farmers. I went to some of the farms to see what they were doing. And I was like, why aren't I using this behind the bar? And uh, so we started. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Marie Cusick. We're talking with Steve Wood, the beverage director at Luca in Lancaster. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. I'm Marie Cusick, sitting in for the Vacationing Scott Lamar today. We're talking with Steve Wood, who's the beverage director at Luca in Lancaster. And Steve, I know you brought some holiday cocktail ideas. We'll get to those in a few minutes. Uh, but we're kind of talking about your history and how you got interested in, in cocktail history. So if you have any questions or comments, you can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. And Steve, I know you got really interested and kind of cut your teeth at John J. Jeffries, which just has an amazing menu for food and cocktails. But Absolutely. then you've really left a legacy at a couple places, I, I feel like. Your next move was to Hunger and Thirst. Um, yes. And now you're at Luca, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but what did you do next at Hunger and Thirst? Because you, you kind of had a whole new idea there, right? Yeah. So um, I had become friends with uh, the owner, uh, Andrew Neff. And, you know, be even before I... I made the leap to go there. We, we would just talk about the fact that, you know, beer cocktails in the cities had become this thing. And, he, you know, he had 24 taps of just, you know, amazingly well-sourced beer. And he has an amazing palate. And there are all these interesting flavors in all these beers. And so upon talking to him, I was like, well, let's make beer cocktails. I mean, this can't be that hard, right? Um but really, my idea there was to use the beers to kind of enhance all these flavors in the base cocktail. Um, and I, I went overboard with it at first, <laughs> and, which they know, and, and I openly admit. And, you know, I went from having all beer cocktails on a menu to kind of confining it to a few. Not everyone wants beer in their cocktail. Yeah, no, no. Um, but really, what it ended up being was I wasn't so much putting beer in cocktails, but I was tasting a beer, and I would get inspiration from that beer you know, I would sit after every shift and, you know, we'd have our shifties and, you know, I can remember specifically trying this one stout that was aged in Fernet Branca barrels. And I was just blown away. I was like, I need to make a cocktail that tastes like this. We have Fernet Branca behind this bar. We need to make this happen. 
and so we just started toying around and it was it was a lot of fun we played with so many different flavor profiles that i had not played with the john j jeffries it was a, just a completely new challenge for me and it, yeah we had a lot of fun with that and that cocktail ended up being fantastic it was called the black mocha bomb <laughs> well and i have friends who visit from out of town they live in major cities and i know they've mentioned to me both hunger and thirst and john j jeffries as yeah. they're they're really surprised to find these kind of menus in lancaster um, but talk about what you're doing next because, uh, or what you're doing now, because yes. Luca is this great Italian restaurant that opened over the summer, and I know it's—I uh, don't know if it's still difficult to get a table there, but at least it was. It uh, can be. In the, in Plan the, ahead. Yeah. So, um, what what are you doing there now? What's the kind of concept there? So, um, Luca is is really to me, it's just the embodiment of food and drink in Italy. Um, really what we're going for there is curating this experience that you could get um, if you were in Italy where food and drink is such an essential part of life. Um, and so really upon you know starting these concepts and talking to our head chef and uh, owner, Taylor Mason, who uh, also owns Maison, a great little BYOB restaurant downtown, um, we really wanted to do it right, to do it true, you know, to, uh, for lack of better term, uh, a mentor of mine the other day was talking about how, you know, it's so important for these restaurants with specific focus to stay in your guardrails. Um, and I thought that was a, an interesting way to look at it. And that's really what we do at Luca is we don't stray from, from, from Italy. We really try to stay true to that country. Um, Everything I do is a spin on either an Italian or American classic, but I'm really highlighting all these unique spirits that are so abundant um, in Italy, you know, Amaros and Apertivos, and how they have such an important part of history in, in everyone's daily life in Italy. You know, Apertivo hour after work, you know, you you have an Aperol spritz or you have a Negroni, and it's paired with a little bite of food. and Everywhere you go, you get this kind of unique experience, and we really want to embody that um, at Luca. So it was staying true to these Italian classics, but also, you know, the creative side of things. Uh, I'm also doing spins on margaritas and uh, spins on, uh, in which one of the cocktails that I'm going to talk about is a spin on a whiskey sour, um, and that might be a good segue to to talk about that one. Okay. Well, first, can I can I throw in? We got an email that somebody yes. has a question for you. Of course. Um, so, my wife is a huge fan of layered drinks. I enjoy making them, but sometimes my taste and hers are off. Uh, we're hosting a holiday party, and my m wife wants to try making some kind of candy cane inspired layered drink, um, like a Pousse Cafe. Am I saying that okay. right? Can you make any rec recommendations that would um, be sort of like that? So, um, yeah, if if you're trying to if you have very different palettes, you know, and you're trying to kind of come together um, and, and make something that you can both enjoy and that you know your guests will enjoy, I think um, the first question you need to ask yourself is, do I want this to be an easygoing cocktail? And I would say yes. For, for a party, you want to keep it light and you want to keep it fun. So um, with that idea of candy cane, you know, and you have you have spearmint in there, um, I think you could honestly do something that was champagne-based. You know, champagne is a great—it just really elevates a lot of flavors. That sounds festive. Yeah, and, you know, there's so many different things with, you know, you could 
you know, even though mint's not in season right now, you could do something with mint and cranberries and rum and champagne uh, with a little bit of lemon juice. Or you could take it, you know, whatever base spirit you really want to go with. Um, but you can create those flavors of a candy cane with, you know, natural Build you know, your own ingredients. candy cane. Yeah, Don't build throw your own. a candy cane in it. Yeah, and that that brings me back to like Jeffrey's where we were trying to create these ideas from, from fresh ingredients rather than needing to use these, you know, um, kind of overly sweetened, you know, liqueurs and things like that. And I think that's a, you know, a very basic way to put it. You can definitely contact me more at my email, and we can we can chat about yeah, that. We'll that would put, be great. We'll put your contact on our website. Um, Wonderful. And I know you, you brought a couple recipes that we're also going to put on our website. Um, yes. So one I just want to talk talk with you about is uh, you're from Pottsville. Yes, I am. Um, so you brought a, a cocktail recipe called the Murphy Family Boil O. It's a traditional Yuletide drink from the coal region of Pennsylvania. So uh, why don't you tell us about what's in that? Yeah, absolutely. Or the uh, history behind it too. Yeah, so uh, Boilo is this kind of this phenomenon in in uh, colder coal region areas. You know, during the colder months. Um, so, you know, around the holidays, I would I would go to my friends' houses um, in Pottsville, and all the adults would be drinking this hot beverage out of like these little tiny ceramic glasses, and I was like, "What's going on here?" Um, <laughs> But it, it was boil low and literally boil low. So the whole concept here um, is that, you know, traditionally when miners in, in these areas would come up from the mines after a cold winter day, they would go to their local taverns. And there were taverns everywhere. <laughs> I mean, every street has like three or four taverns on in some of these little towns. Um, you would come up from the mines and you would be served immediately this glass of boil low. And it would come in these little ceramic kind of shot glasses, and you would, you know, take one down, and it immediately would warm you up. Um, And so this was something that every single tavern had their own recipe, you know, so it was always different. Um, The recipe that I received was one from the Murphy family, which now they own jewelry shops in um, Pottsville and regionally as well. But they have this recipe that was handed on from them from a relative who... You know, was either I don't know if he owned the tavern or worked in a tavern, but it's a very simple recipe. Um, so you start off with eight oranges and, and some oranges and lemons, and we don't have to go into the quantities specifically; they'll be on the website. Yeah, we'll post it. Um, you start off with oranges and lemons, and you you zest um, the zest with basically like a potato peeler, and you want to pull off that zest in one big long ribbon, so you have all those essential oils kind of packed in there, and then. You add those into a pot. You juice the oranges and lemons. You add a pound of honey. Um, and, you know, probably every Boilo recipe is using a different sweetener. They tended to use honey, which is probably why I love it so much. Um, and then cinnamon sticks, red pepper flakes, and cloves. And it really is that simple. You, you know, So you take all the ingredients minus the whiskey. You take the orange juice, the lemon, the honey, the cloves, the cinnamon, and you boil that all for 10 minutes. And after 10 minutes, you add an entire bottle of whiskey. Um, at the time, the whiskey that they used was... How many does this serve? <laughs> well, it actually makes about two to three 750 milliliter bottles. So it'll serve, you know, it'll serve 10 to 15 people. Okay. No problem. Um, 
But so, you know, then you add the whiskey and you boil it low. You don't want to cook off any of the alcohol because then kind of what's the point? You don't want to do that. <laughs> wasted uh, effort. Yeah, wasted effort. Um, so you boil that low for about 10 minutes. You take it off the heat and you either conserve it immediately or you can bottle up, bottle it up to reheat at another time. But it's this very simple recipe and it's it's so refreshing. It sounds really good. And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. I'm Marie Cusick, sitting in for the vacationing Scott Lamar. We're speaking with Steve Wood, the beverage director at Luca in Lancaster. Um, Steve, so talk about, you know, the cocktail scene in Lancaster overall has really changed. I mean, not just at the places where you worked and, and, and you've mentioned already, but um, it seems like this is kind of catching on. We're beyond, we've, we're in the post Apple teeny phase, I'd say. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's been really fantastic to watch um, the past 10 years in Lancaster to see how things have evolved. Um, we're really, you know, when I got my start in downtown Lancaster around 2004, 2005, yeah, you could go out and get a drink, but it was kind of the same everywhere. You know, some places were elevating things a little bit more. Um, but, you know, between like 2005 and 2007 is really when I really tried to launch my concepts at John J. Jeffries, you know, craft cocktails using fresh ingredients, local fresh ingredients to enhance spirits. Um, and, you know, that was something that people really took well to, and it, it went really well. And I started seeing a lot of other restaurants after that time kind of doing similar things, and it was this lovely kind of passing of the torch. And and, you know, I could walk up the street and get a good cocktail. I could, you know, and now it's kind of happening everywhere, you know. Right, you know, not just Lancaster. No, I didn't yeah, mean single out Lancaster. Yeah, but in Lancaster specifically, you know, you can come to Luca. You can get a true Italian experience in, in the cocktail world. You can go to uh, the Horse Inn and you can get like a really well-made kind of mind-blowing classic cocktail or a spin on a classic cocktail. Um, or, you know, you can go to John J. Jeffries still and get something that's utilizing these fresh ingredients. But, I mean, it doesn't end there. The press room has a great in cocktail uh, program going right now, and, and lots of my friends in Lancaster. I could go on and on about this. Um, but it's it's this beautiful thing, and I think it's a trend that is, is here to stay and um, been glad to be a part of it for the past eight to ten years. It's fun. Well, I want to ask you now because it's not uh, not everyone can sort of do all the um, ex fresh ingredients and the you know I know you set some of the drinks on fire and everything, but yes. what what advice do you have to sort of the average person who's just trying to build a great cocktail at home? There's a really simple formula, um, and it was defined very effectively to me in that first book that was handed me by uh, Gordon Drake in 2004. And it's really basic. It's you have a base spirit. You have what could those be like? Yeah, vodka, gin. you know, vodka, gin, brandy, whiskey. You have that. You want to do that two parts of that, and then you want to do a three quarter part of a sweetening agent and a three quarter part of a souring agent. So you have. So what would that be? So your sweetening agent could be your simple syrup, your sugar, your honey, agave if you're using tequila. You know, and then. For your souring agent, it's citrus or anything that just provides a nice tang. It could be cranberry. It could be, you know, a multitude of things. 
And then to kind of bind all those ingredients together, you have a modifying agent, which is your bitters, or if you're doing some kind of tincture uh, using a root or a plant, um, or it could just be some fresh herbs. Um, and really that that two to three quarter to three quarter and maybe point uh, one quarter of a modifying agent, it almost works every time if you are using fresh, simple ingredients. And I think keep it simple. I mean, my favorite cocktails, even though I can go kind of off the rails with things <laughs> I'm doing, they're super simple. There are three parts. And I think that's a way to start. And it's a great segue into making things that are more complex. What's one of your favorite cocktails or something you're drinking right now? Uh, not right now, actually. You're yeah. drinking coffee. I just want to make that clear. Are you sure there's not a <laughs> Fernet Bronca? Just kidding. Um, no, for me, like the most basic cocktails are like the Sazerac is still one of my go-tos. Um, it's very simple. It's whiskey, bitters, absinthe, and a little bit of sugar and a lemon twist. It's very simple and it's it's just this explosion of great flavors. But now that I'm really uh, embracing all things bitter and I've been doing that for a while, a Negroni, uh, you know, it's equal parts uh, gin, vermouth, and Campari. It's, it's beautiful and yeah, we make a good one at Luca. You should come try it. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's simple and I think simple is just as sophisticated as complex and, and that's something that I really need to almost embrace more because, you know, you get creative and you end up with these 10-step ingredients. But keep it simple. I think that's the main focus. Is there a particular bartending book you'd recommend for an average person since you did bring six of them in? But um, is yeah, there one you'd recommend? I would. Uh, and and I actually don't have the book here because I have no idea where it has disappeared over the, my last few jobs. But, and if you know, you should return it to me. Um, <laughs> there's a great book and it's um, called The Art of the Bar and it was written um, by the uh, the bartenders and owners at the Absinthe Brasserie in San Francisco and it really breaks down like all these simple ways of looking at drinks. It's, it's more of a fun book to read about the exchange between a bartender and a guest and how important it is and how we are inspired by our guests and for me you know even if you don't work in the bar industry as someone who goes to bars, it's a really fun book to read. And it really will highlight why you should always ask your questions. Don't. And as a bartender, we're here to appease you. We want you to enjoy it. If you don't like it, we shouldn't be mad. We should make you a drink you like. It's that simple. All right. Very well said. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Steve Wood is the beverage director at Luca in Lancaster. And Scott Lamar will be back on Monday and he'll discuss how Pennsylvania's district attorneys have come up with guidelines for investigating police shootings. Thanks for joining us. I'm Marie Cusick. <laughs>